Well, there can never be too many or not enough Shabbat Shalom. So Shabbat Shalom to you all. Good morning-ish. It's almost 11, so it's kind of morning, but not really. Uh, Hope everybody had a great holiday season, a great uh, happy new year, and just thank you to Larry and the rest of the elder board for giving me a chance to speak and get up here and share with you guys um, what God had on on my heart and put on my heart to share with you all. So how about a round of applause, though, for all the young people that were part of the service? Um, it's, it, was, it was really great to see people stand up and really, uh, really step forward and kind of get over their fear a little bit and getting, being in front of people and, um, you know, and worship God. And uh, it was really cool. And also Jim. How about Jim for putting all this together? I give him a round of applause as well. Because he's behind all the, behind the scenes, coordinating everything. So shout out to Jim as well. Um, it's really important for young people to be a part of part of the services, because it really, what it does is it gives them a chance to, um, you know, take ownership of their faith, take ownership of what they believe in, and that's really important in our day and age now, is to really own what we believe, because we can say something, but we have to really mean what we say, especially now in our time and um, in our culture, and um, just a little blip on uh, what's going on in, with the young people here at Shuva. Me and Jim have observed over the past, you know, five or six months that as more high schoolers start to graduate and level up and age up, there's this need for more of a uh, fellowship of uh, what we call young adults or the next step out of high school. So me and Jim have kind of put together this group. Um, we call it uh, Kesher, which means in Hebrew means connection. Um, it's all about, we're all about building community, building uh, relationships and uh, solid relationships here at Shuva so that um, when we go out in the world, we know we have a support system and a solid connection with uh, fellow young people our age. So we usually meet uh, the first Shabbat, first Saturday of the week, and the third Saturday. So if any of you uh, know of any young people that are seeking a group out like this, we usually have a luncheon, and there's food provided here the first week. The third week, we usually do uh, more of like if we go off campus for like to a coffee shop, or we stay here and we do a little bit of a discussion on a certain relevant topic in the world. So that's kind of a little blip. Um, my final goal, and I've talked about this with Larry, um, is in the future, uh, back in about in the Northeast, uh, there's a really big, vibrant community of Messianic believers. And about once every other year, they put together what they call the gathering. And it's just about, it's just all young people coming together for fellowship from all around the country. And this past year, they almost had 150 young Messianic believers gather. And it would be cool to have a gathering west, because they're at the east, so we could call it the gathering west. So that's in the future, but kind of like forecasting, you know, what would be great to have here. Um, Also, how about a round of applause for my sister in her video? I got I to give the plug. I got to give the plug to my sister. It's, I was up behind the scenes kind of like taking a step back and just watching the whole uh, creative process and getting little bits and pieces from her along the way. And there were some ups, there were some downs. You know, I came in there and she was, you know, in tears one time. And I was like, what's wrong? She's just like, it's just, don't worry about it. It's just the video. It's just the video. So there was ups and downs, but it came out great. And um, all over, it's actually being shared all over social media. That's the beauty of our day and age with social media is it can reach people even around the world and even some advocate for Israel groups are sharing it and it's getting bigger and bigger and blowing up. So keep the video in your prayers because it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, last week, I have a lot of friends who are with Chosen People who are in New York 
as well as advocate for Israel people who are in New York. And as you know, there's a growing amount of anti-Semitic attacks in America, but in New York in general, and it's, it's only growing and growing. And about last week, they had, uh, they had a march where thousands of people marched against anti-Semitism, and it was a rally. And I have, the, uh, I have the theme for you, and the theme was no hate, no fear. So going against hate and not being afraid to stand up and being proud to be Jewish. Because in our day and age, sometimes that's not the easiest thing to do. So just ask that you keep our Jewish people in prayer, especially as they're going through hate crimes and attacks in, in the world that aren't necessarily great to stomach, and, and it's, it's not all positive. So keep, keep our Jewish people in prayer. So as we transition into what I'm going to speak about today, the title of the message today is Rejection, the End, and I kind of want to zero in on the topic of today's message is, is rejection. Now, by show of hands, who has experienced rejection in their lives? Ooh, ooh. Anybody up there? I see one up there. Okay, Rebecca, I see you. Everyone has probably experienced rejection, yes? It's a very relevant topic, and that's why I really wanted to hit on this today. It happens to everyone, and it always happens sometimes when you wish it didn't happen. When you're in a certain situation in your life, or you're in a certain time in your life, you always think to yourself, man, you know, I wish and I hope that I walk through the situation unscathed, and I come out of it with no, no bruises or nicks. But sometimes that's not the case. So it always happens when sometimes you wish it didn't happen, and it always takes your wind. Have you ever uh, slipped and fell on your back or on your side, and the wind is knocked out of your lungs, and you're just there breathing, you can't get any oxygen, and it's just you're going through pain, and it's just a bad experience. Sometimes that's what rejection feels like. Maybe not physically, but mentally and emotionally, that's what it feels like. You know, and, and the common theme is it always brings you to a low point. It always seems to get you down on your knees and to beat you down. But as believers, we know we have hope. As believers, we know that we can tread through life and go through life knowing we have a greater hope and a greater encouragement and a greater power who is behind us. But even so, by all the hands I saw, rejection is still there and everyone's gone through it. And sometimes doubt creeps in. In situations, in certain situations, doubt will creep in. What do we do when that doubt creeps in? And that's what I want to get at today. That's the question I want to answer. When the doubt creeps in, is rejection the end? When you ask yourself that question, how do you answer it? So a main part of my message today and a main part of what I'm going to speak about today has to center around um, biblical characters, people in the Bible who are written about, uh, who have gone through things. And I think that's really important to go through these biblical characters because they, pres- they give us a concrete view, image in front of us of people who've gone through things in different ways, in different times, and they've succeeded, they've failed, but the thing is we can learn from those successes and we can learn from those failures. And that's why it's so valuable to go through biblical characters. So I picked a couple of biblical characters to go through today and um, hopefully they'll speak to you as they spoke to me. So the first character I want to go in today is Jephthah and go into the rejection of Jephthah. Now, a lot of people don't, if you don't know who Jephthah is, it's not a common name. Not everybody in the 21st century is going to name their kid Jephthah. 
and I pray for that kid as he goes forward in life if he's named Jephthah. Um, but this was a name given to someone thousands of years ago, and um, he, he has an interesting story, and rejection is a big part of his story. And I want to get into the context of his story for a second. So the first point in your outlines, if you pull out your outlines, is the rejection of Jephthah. And letter A is the context of his story. So to understand what was going on, we kind of have to go into a little bit, a little bit of it, of the context. So the time of the judges. Right after Joshua, the conquest of the land, Israel's moved in, they've settled in, Joshua's died, peace is, all, is all across the land, and the Israelites get kind of comfortable. They get kind of, they get cozy where they're at. And they start to disobey God. They start to rebel. They start to commit idolatry. They start to forget what God has done for them and forget who God is. And the, 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 uh, the quote that could really put it in words would be, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. What this person thought was right, he was doing. What this person right, thought he was, he was right, he was doing. Everyone had a different explanation on life and they were doing that. So it was, everything was up in the air. And there seems to be this cycle as you go through the book of Judges itself and it repeats itself over and over and over. And so this is how it goes. I'm gonna give you a quick little blurb. First starts out with, um, during this cozy period of safety, Israel sinning, disobeying God, and committing idolatry. Then you move on to anger and God's anger. And so in that anger, God raises up an oppressor. And sometimes, most of the times, it was in the form of a heathen nation that surrounded Israel who came in and oppressed them. Then you move on to Israel going, oh my gosh, we're wrong. And in that distress, seeking God and looking up to him and saying, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Please help us, help us. And sometimes this process took years and years and years. But God eventually heard and was merciful. And in his mercy, he raised up a judge or raised up someone within Israel to lead the people to freedom, to lead them against their oppressors and liberate them. And after their enemies were defeated, he became the quote-unquote judge or ruler of the land at that time. Disputes, um, law, all of it. But he was the judge at that time. Then, then after a while, the judge passes away, and what happens? Israel gets cozy and comfortable, and they start disobeying and sinning God. So this is the kind of cycle that we see in the book of Judges again and again and again and again. And this is the type of time that Jephthah lived in. So I want to go to, if you could turn in your Bibles or your tablets or your iPhones or whatever electronic or paper device you have, to Judges chapter 10. And in Judges chapter 10, chapter 10, we see that it sets up, this is the portion that sets up Jephthah's story. And I want to go into this as kind of like building the context of what's going on. So in verse 6 of chapter 10 of Judges, it says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the cycle is beginning, Serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the Philistines. Thus they forsook God and did not the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. That's very aggressive, but that's what happened. 
For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead and the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. So this enemy didn't just stop at the Jordan River. They wanted to fight against all Israel in all of the land. They identified the people all as one and oppressed them. It says in 10 and continue. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites and Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And this was the sons of Israel's answer. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So now we know we can identify what part of the cycle that the story is is, uh, implementing here. Israel sinned oppression. They cry out to God. God hears them and is being merciful. Now, the next step in the cycle is a raising up of someone. Then the sons of Ammon, it says in verse 17, were summoned and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzvah. The people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So now we see Israel camped in battle array, the heathen nations, and they're about to go into battle, and Israel has no leader, and they're looking for a leader. Now let's enter in Jephthah's story. Now we understand the need. Now let's go into Jephthah's story himself. And in the beginning of Jephthah's story, in letter B in your outlines, Jephthah's rejection came early in his life, and he was most likely a young man. In Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, now Jephthah the Gilead, Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman, for you are the son of another woman. So as a young person, Jephthah's being rejected by his own blood. And this kind of It's not the same situation, but it kind of reminded me when I was going through the passage, it reminded me of myself when I was a young man or a young, I'm still a young man, but let's just say younger, when I was a young boy. Um, I've been playing basketball since I was three, four years old. And um, athletics in general, um, as Alex and David know, um, athletics in general sometimes are tough because it's competitive. And sometimes there are others that are better than you. And sometimes they push you to the side and they, if you try out for a team and you don't make the team, they cut you and they say you're not good enough. And I had to go through that. My very first youth basketball team that I tried out for, believe me, I wasn't this tall when I was a youth, so. But what I'm trying to get at is I was told that I wasn't good enough. I was told that I didn't make the team because there were others that were better than me. And I wasn't made for the team. I wasn't made for the position. And I was rejected by the coach himself. And I went through things as a, as a kid that were interesting when I think about them now growing up is 
everything was so much bigger. Everything was so much more intense because I was a young person and I was a young, a young kid still trying to find his way in the world, still trying to learn what to do, what not to do. And in the same situation with Jephthah, what do you think he was thinking? As a young kid, to have your own brothers come up to you and say, you're not going to be the, what you're being groomed for. Because remember, offspring and family lines were a huge part of the culture at that time. If you were the firstborn of that family, you were being groomed from young to young man. You were being groomed to take over the family one day and lead the family into the future. So what were his brothers telling him? What you're being groomed for, we don't want you there. We want you to leave. And if you don't leave, we're going to kill you. Can you imagine that as a young person being told that? What would you think? How would you react? What would you feel? What would you go through? That situation would probably feel 10 times larger than it was going forward if you were an adult, but the narrative is the same. See, we process things differently as children and young people. But I want to highlight, and in the next point of your outlines, Jephthah's reaction to the rejection. And in Judges 11.3, it says, So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. So Jephthah flees. His brothers cast him out, and he flees to the land of Tob. Now, the land of Tob in geographical terms is about... Uh, I would say 13 miles southeast across the Jordan River. It was a wilderness. There was nothing there. It was desolate. And it was a place where outcasts would go. It was a place where people who weren't accepted in society would go. And despite Jephthah fleeing here, he still chose to become the leader he was born to be. He still chose to develop his own leadership potential. And the worthless fellows who were around him, the fellow outcasts, they saw this. They saw this person who was an outcast like, like themselves, and they chose to follow him. It reminds me of David. Everybody knows King David, yes? Um, when he was being chased around by Saul, after being anointed by Samuel, he was being chased around by Saul. Where did David flee? He fled to a land where... He fled to the land of the Philistines, but at the same time, it wasn't the most desirable place. And, out, and uh, outcasts and worthless people saw David's potential and gathered around him and wanted to follow him, even to the point of death. So Jephthah is actually the precursor of David when you think about it. This is a man who chose not to become a nobody, to waste away, to let his name go into the dust. He chose to stand on, to, on his two feet and develop himself as the leader that he was born to become. And so, in, your in the next point, my point is his encounter with the ones who rejected him. In Judges 11, verse 4, it says, it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. So now we see in, in chapter 10, it correlates with his point in the story. Ammon is oppressing Israel. Jephthah is in Tob developing himself. And the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, and the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. So they heard that there was someone, when they're crying out, who's going to lead us? Who's going to lead us in battle against the sons of Ammon? They heard of this man in the, in the, in the land of Tob, who's a great and valiant warrior and leader. And then they heard it was Jephthah. 
but they still approached him. The man they rejected, they still went back to him. So Jephthah has an encounter with the people who rejected him in the first place years later. And so they come to Jephthah and they said to Jephthah, come be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? Now what would you do in this situation? The same people who told you to get out, no, 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 come back in, come back in, we need you, we need you, we need you. What would you, what would you say, me and my fleshly instinct? Ah, I don't know, it would be tough because humans are emotional. But we see Jephthah put his emotions to the side and the elders state their, their reason why they came to him. For this reason we have now returned to you that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So basically lead the people. So knowing about uh, them casting him out, he makes them promise. And he basically makes them promise and says, in the text he says, um, you have to promise that I will become your head. There, there's, there's no funny business here. If, you're, if I'm going to help you, I'm going to be your leader. There can be no funny business. And they swear by the Lord and says, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. And so Jephthah went with the leaders of Gilead and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. So look, think about this journey this guy went from. As a young child, maybe a early teenager, being cast out of his own house into the wilderness, still choosing to develop his leadership potential, people following him, and then the people who came back to him wanting him to become their leader. That's quite the narrative arc there in a paragraph of verses there. That's quite the development. But there's still more to Jephthah's character that I admired. Despite being a valiant warrior and leader, Jephthah understood the, understand, he understood the value of life and he tried to avoid bloodshed. And instead of using the pain of rejection to fuel him to go on a killing spree, he took a step back. The next point is Jephthah becomes the diplomat. He didn't just rush into battle against the sons of Ammon with the spirit of the Lord flowing through him and kill a bunch of people. No, no, no. He took a step back and became the diplomat. And what he did was he used Israel's history as a tool of his diplomacy. In verse 12, of chapter 11, it says, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against the land, my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore return them peaceably now. And Jephthah probably laughed as he, was, as he sent back messengers to say his reply. And he, and he says, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, it came to Kedesh. Then Israel uh, came to Kedesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom wouldn't listen. And they also sent king to Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kedesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab. Jephthah's narrating this historical narrative here. Uh, For the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. So what 
Jephthah's doing right now is he's telling the king of Ammon, look, when, when my people hundreds of years ago came out of the land of Egypt, we asked permission to go through lands, and we were refused time again, time again, time again. We were refused to go through the land. And, and Jephthah's capstone is, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. He's quite the diplomat, isn't he? He's reasoning with someone who wants to cause him physical harm. It's an unfair exchange, and he's reasoning with him diplomatically. Quite the leader, not just a valiant warrior, but a diplomat as well. And then finally, in verse 27, he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. And it begs the question, when you're going throughout life and you're walking throughout your individual path, have you ever tried to remember God's faithfulness? Have you ever tried to remember your history and where you've come from and where you're going and where that history is leading you? That could be pretty powerful and could get you through circumstances that might seem insurmountable at the time. But when you remember God's faithfulness, it could be that much more powerful. And that's what Jephthah was doing. He was being diplomatic, but he was remembering God's faithfulness to his people when they needed it most. And as the story continues, and as he's about to go into the battle with the sons of Ammon, and he's filled with the Spirit, he kind of makes a mistake. And the next point of your outlines is, it's his rash vow to the Lord. In Judges 11.30, it says, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Ooh, that's some strong words. Whatever comes out to meet me first. Whatever. Anything. Whatever comes out to meet me. So, the Lord gives him his victory. It's a big, it's, it's, it's a great victory for Israel. And on his return home, this is what happens. In verse 34, it said, Jephthah came to his house and Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. In his, in his I would say, pride, and in his, look at how far I've come. I came from the lowest of the low in the wilderness to the leader of an entire nation, leading people into battle. I'm just going to speak without thinking. And what did that cost him? It costed him the end of his family line. In that time, like I said, your lineage was everything. Your line, your family line was everything. When we think about 
the God of our fathers, what do we say? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We think about the lineage. But with Jephthah, his rash vow brought in a rash result. His line ended because it was his only, only child. And the text, I don't really want to get into it because it could be a whole message on its own, but the text said that he consecrated her as a virgin. So what we know for sure is Jephthah's line ended, and it was almost as good as death for him because after that, there was no way to remember him by at that time. So even though Jephthah's victories were great, his mistake was a costly reminder that our words to the Lord should not be taken lightly. They shouldn't be taken lightly. So let's go on to our next character. And in your outlines, it's Yeshua himself. And let's go into the rejection of Yeshua himself. About 700 years before Yeshua, the prophet Isaiah predicted his rejection. And in Isaiah 53, we correlate the suffering servant with Yeshua himself. So in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So Isaiah's painting this picture of someone who wasn't accepted, of someone who didn't have a desirable appearance, of someone who wasn't attractive, of someone who was forsaken by men. And, they, and men hid their face from him. Now let's fast forward 100 years into Yeshua's actual life and ministry, and we see the same narrative of rejection. In John 1.11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The, the people he was sent to didn't receive him. Does it sound a little bit like Jephthah? His own family rejected him? In this sense, Yeshua's family rejected him. In Matthew 13, verse 54, he came to his hometown, Yeshua, Nazareth, and began, preaching, or began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom in these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, the, is not his mother uh, Miriam and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Sound like Jephthah, doesn't it? His own family saw his potential but still rejected him. His own family saw what his birthright was and still rejected him. Yeshua was doing miracles. Yeshua was serving the people. Yeshua was teaching them in, in ways they haven't even have never seen before, yet they still rejected him. And they, the, the, the interesting fact, too, with Yeshua is they saw him grow up in front of their very eyes. It wasn't like they casted him outright when they saw him like Jephthah, but they saw this person grow up and demonstrate all these things, yet they still casted him out. Luke 4, verse 28 and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, Yeshua teaching. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Rejection to the point of death. That's what Yeshua's rejection was through. But see, 
That's all negative, but we have to realize this was the plan all along with Yeshua. Rejection was the plan from the beginning. And as the disciples are witnessing all of what was going on, the miracles and the teachings and the multitudes of people following Yeshua across the land of Israel, they're asking questions as, why is this happening? What is going on? Like, shouldn't there be better, more positive results? And in Matthew 21, Yeshua tells a parable about this rejection to answer their questions. In verse, 20, uh, in verse 33 of Matthew 21, Yeshua says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vine grower comes, this is Yeshua speaking after the parable, asking the disciples, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And the disciples answer, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out, the vineyard to the under, rent out the vineyard to the other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So they were basically saying, we need to, uh, it, what, would ha- what will we do? Yeshua was asking, the disciples are, what will we do, Yeshua? Oh, we would go straight to that person and we would take, take him and throw him out and give that vineyard to another person. We would do justice. We would do him justice. I could picture Yeshua smiling and laughing right now. And in his answer saying, did you never read the scriptures in verse 42? He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Yeshua was reminding them this is what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be rejected. No matter what you're seeing, no matter what you're doing, I'm supposed to be I'm supposed to be rejected. This was the plan all along. Humility, servanthood, and rejection were all a part of God's plan. Yeshua's mission outweighed his rejection. And I love this verse in Mark 10, 45, because it encapsulates Yeshua's life and his mission in one verse. The context of this verse is the disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to when Yeshua will be glorified, who's going to sit on his right and his left, and who's going to be glorified with him. But he reminds them in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Humility, servanthood, laying your life down. These were the characteristics of why Yeshua had come. Paul himself Rav Shaul himself relished in Yeshua's victory and in his mission. That's the next point in your outline, Yeshua's victory despite his rejection. Paul relished in Yeshua's victory in Philippians 2. And he used Yeshua's victory to motivate himself to get through what what he was going through. The many rejections by his own brothers, by Gentiles, physical abuse, 
mental abuse, emotional abuse that he was going through. He used Yeshua's victory to get through those things. And in Philippians 2, he says in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in, the, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, on a cross, on a tree. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was the plan all along. Yeshua to be rejected so that he can be glorified later. See, if Yeshua is our example and who we should model our lives after, after, then humility should be a main focus in our life, and that's not the easiest thing to do. But see, we have Yeshua who we can put as a model, and we can, we can mold our lives after him. Humility should be our calling card. Humility should be what sets us apart. No matter where we are or where we come from, we should approach life with a humble mindset. And remember, Yeshua's words and actions shouldn't really be taken lightly. They should be valued because they mean our lives can be lived with purpose and meaning. We can go throughout each and every day knowing that we're living the life we're called to live. And we can all, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm saying we can use Yeshua as an example, we can use him because he has overcome the things we will go through. He has gone through everything we have ever gone through and probably to the utmost extent. He went through something that probably none of us ever want to go through. He was rejected by God himself and the sins of the world were placed on, this, on Yeshua. That's rejection. But in John 16, 33, he says, Yeshua says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. He's an example for you that he has overcome the things you're going through and you will go through. So let's bring it all together. How do we deal with rejection? Because like I said in the beginning, yes, we're believers. Yes, we have hope. Yes, we have a calling and a purpose. But when we go through rejection, the doubt sometimes creeps in. The doubts sometimes tell us we're not worth it. We can't do what we're doing. We need to turn back. We need to stay down. We don't want to speak up. We need to be fearful of who we are. So as we deal with this, my first point in A is it's emotions versus convictions. And when I say emotions versus convictions, I mean, what do your emotions tell you every day? And then what are your convictions supposed to tell you every day? What do our emotions tell us when we go through hard times? Turn back. It's not worth it. You can't do it. Stop. All the negative words that correlate with emotions because we're human beings. We have emotions. And if you're not, if you don't have emotions, then you're a robot. And we don't want to be robots. So here's my thing. What are your convictions supposed to tell you? Your convictions are supposed to tell you, I have a God who's for me. I have a God who cares for me. I have a God who has a plan for me, a purpose for me. 
someone who wants me to be successful and who's putting me through things for a reason. That's what your convictions should tell you. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We can trust and know 150% that whatever God has planned for us, it's for us to prosper. It's not for calamity. And we know that as believers, and because we put our trust in Yeshua, we can call and talk to God any time of the day at any point. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Someone who will be there for you every moment of the day, whenever you call on him, he's there for you. It's quite the God we serve. Rejection isn't the end. We know that Yeshua went through it. And Yeshua took the hate of the world in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it negative thoughts and emotions and even physical actions on us. But we know that Yeshua took that hate and he overcame that hate. So can we. We can overcome that hate. And it's all down to faith. And it all boils, up to, about boils down to faith in the Lord's sovereignty. That's the key. Faith in the Lord's sovereignty. And what is sovereignty? I love the theological definition of sovereignty and so does Larry. Larry says it all the time. God chooses what he wants to do, when he wants, how he wants, and he doesn't ask our opinion. But remember, even though he doesn't ask our opinion, he has our best interests in mind. We have to trust that. No matter what happens, he has our best interests in mind. And in Matthew 26, at the epitome of God's plan, Yeshua is in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be arrested, knowing what he's about to go through. He's praying to God, understanding what he's about to go through, the torture, the, the uh, emotional angst, the, the uh, ridicule, everything he was about to go through, but he still trusted in God's sovereignty. In, in verse 36, then Yeshua came to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them, fell on his face, praying and said, my father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples, found them sleeping and said, so you men could not keep watch with me for another hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And he went again a second time, prayed saying, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The son of man who came to serve and not to be served was about to lay his life down for all. And he knew what he was gonna go through. He knew that was probably one of the most excruciating deaths any person on this earth can ever go through. But he still knew that it was all a part of God's plan and he trusted in God's sovereignty, even to the point of death. Us ourselves, we have to trust in God's sovereignty. We have to understand that God has seen us from the very beginning to the very end. He knows Fran from when she, he, he sees Fran in one snapshot, from when she was a little baby, to when she was younger, to when she's all the way up to this point, he sees her in one snapshot. See how I skirted those words? I didn't say any words. 
No words. But you get what I'm saying here. He sees each person in one snapshot their entire life. He knows what you're going to go through. He knows what you've gone through. In Psalm 139, verse 13, For you have formed my inward parts. You have wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. We're all made unique and special by God. We all, each and every one of us, have specific purposes in this world and in our lives. We have to trust in God's sovereignty that those plans are going to be fulfilled in the future. And when we're going through tough times and we're going through rejection that from people who we might not have expected it from, we can cry out to God. In Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's there for you when you need him. Whenever, however, he's there for you. And when we truly want our lives to be impactful and meaningful and purposeful, we have to have the same confidence in the Lord on our worst day as we have on our best day. We have to be consistent because Yeshua was consistent. He knew God's plan and he never panicked. He went through everything we've gone through and will go through and he never panicked. He understood that he had to drink that cup because that's what God's plan was. And we have to understand that too. Never let, and, and one of our final points in D, never let pride get in the way of serving the Lord. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Remember, when you come out of the pit of rejection and you start to see your life picking up and getting better and better and better, don't get comfortable. Don't get cozy like Israel did in the book of Judges. Prideful actions can sometimes usher in results we might not like. We might act out and say, oh, I'm better now, so I should just go ahead and do this, or I should go ahead and say this. Remember what happened to Jephthah. He got cozy too. Despite all everything he had gone through, he got cozy with what was going on in his life, and he made a rash vow. What happened to him? His line was ended, just like that. We have to have our yes be our yes and our no be our no. And we have to understand that our words to the Lord are valued and important and they shouldn't be taken lightly at all. And the last point goes along with, I was almost about to joke with Fran, age is just a number. Age is just a number. And I'm not saying this because it's a young people service. I'm not saying this because, you know, a bunch of young people helped out with this and to make the, the older people feel better about themselves. What I'm saying is age is just a number and no matter what you're going through in life. And here's a few people just in our modern culture, pop culture, who were successful later in their lives, but were told they couldn't early. Everybody knows who Stan Lee is? I don't know if any of you are Marvel comic fans, but he was told at age 18 that his comics were too out of the box. They would never be successful. Anybody seen the Marvel Cinematic Universe nowadays? It's generated billions of dollars. There are conferences of thousands of people that dress up like characters that he created. And he was successful at 40, 40 years old. Larry David, everybody know who Larry David is? 
He tried to write for Saturday Night Live in his early 30s, and he was told he couldn't write. He had no talent. At age four, or 15 years later, he created and wrote a TV show called Seinfeld. Everybody heard of Seinfeld? Still played today, 20 years later. Told he couldn't write. Successful at age 42. Susan Boyle, anybody heard of Susan Boyle? Was told because of her appearance and because of how she talked, how she looked, how she acted, she would never be successful in the music industry. She auditioned for Britain, uh, UK Britain's Got Talent. She's the number one billboard seller in the United Kingdom because of her voice and her talents. She didn't listen to what people were telling her. She pressed on and was successful at age 47. Julia Child was told that her cooking hobby should just stay a hobby. But at age 50, she was inducted into the Culinary Institute of America's Hall of Fame. Extremely successful chef. But she was told that she wouldn't be successful. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Everybody heard of that author? Well, she was told that her stories weren't good enough. And at 65, she wrote Little House on the Prairie. Thomas Edison was told he was crazy for trying to think about inventing uh, the light bulb. Thousands of tries later, so many doubters telling him he he should just give up. That one time he became successful and started a revolution where electricity is something that we rely on nowadays. Harry Bernstein, everybody heard of Harry Bernstein? He was a man who had a tumultuous upbringing. He had an alcoholic father and a divorced, divorced parents, and he went through a lot of trauma in his life. And he ended up writing, toward the end of his life, he ended up writing a memoir that helped others get through those situations in life. And he was 96 when he finally published the book. 96. And his quote with the publisher in his book He says that my 90s were the most productive years of my life. Anybody know who Larry Feldman is? (laughs) So, at going from January 15th, 1972, he was diving headfirst into ministry. He was effective in everything he did. Planted five congregations. Reached so many people with the gospel incredibly effective. But at age 47, he was told he couldn't do ministry anymore. Can you imagine that? Telling Larry that you can't preach, and preach the gospel anymore. You can't do ministry anymore. At 47, he was told that. And he tried to go to other people. He tried to go to friends, anyone who would accept him. And their, their reply was, where there's smoke, there's fire. There were fingers being pointed at him. Accusations being made. He, about five days later, collapsed with three ulcers and had to be rushed to the hospital. He made a eventual recovery, but he had to deal with in his mind, is it all over? Everything I've worked for, Lord, everything you've built me up to, is it all over? And when he told me the story, he said he was praying and he had his fists clenched. And he was going through it in his head and in his mind and praying, 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 praying. And the one thing he got from the Lord was, Larry, 
open your hands. Let it go. And once he did that, peace. This is at age 47. Now look at him. Still going strong at, I'm not going to say the age. Still going strong. Still going strong. Age is just a number. Success at a certain age doesn't define you. It doesn't determine your life. It just shows you how far you've come and how much you've learned. And I want to end with this clip. Everybody knows Rocky, right? The movies. Of course, Larry knows. He knows all of them plot by plot point by plot point. But I was searching around and just looking at the movies and there was this one scene in Rocky, one, two, three, four, five, I think it's six, Rocky six. And it's a conversation with his son who has grown up. Seen Rocky go through everything he's gone through, the fights, the people who told him he wasn't gonna be the boxer, he ended up being everything. His mother dying, passing away. Adrian, yo Adrian. Everything. And Rocky is challenged by a champion, the current champion, because throughout the movie you see the, the crescendo of the buildup, but the bottom line is Rocky's challenged again. And Rocky has a choice to go back in the ring and fight to defend his honor. But because of this, his son is receiving flack and wherever he goes, the workplace, he's getting ridiculed and rejected in the workplace, in social, in his social circles and everything. And he goes back to his father's restaurant to tell him, I don't want you to fight because I don't want to be rejected anymore. I don't want to experience this anymore. It's tough. I don't want it to happen anymore. And this is the clip, if we could play it. You ain't gonna believe this. Well, you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid's gonna be the best kid in the world. This kid's gonna be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching every day was like a privilege. Then the time come for you to be your own man and take on the world, and you did. But somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame, like a big shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens. You're my son, you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't gonna have a life. Don't forget to visit your mother. It's pretty powerful, right? Yeah. 
Pretty motivating, right? But see, what was Rocky's point? In life, things will get you down. There's going to be people trying to beat you down. But see, we have a model. This is what Rocky was saying. This is transition what I'm saying. We have a model in Yeshua who has taken the hits, and he's taken the beatings, but he's overcome it. And he's done the winning, as Rocky said. He's done the winning. We can do that too. So don't think rejection is the end of God's plan for your life because it could just be the beginning. Therefore, press on, persevere, and have faith in the Lord's sovereignty in each and every one of your lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Shabbat and the rest that you, that you usher in through your Shabbat. I pray that today and going forward, we take whatever was said today or whatever you impress upon our hearts and you'd help us use it to motiv- as motivation to get through the rejection in our lives, to get through the things we are going to face, but to help us to understand that it's all part of your plan. It's all part of what you have set for us. Thank you for people like Jephthah. Thank you for Yeshua himself for giving us a visual reminder that it could just be the beginning. That your plan for us is so much more than our circumstances. So thank you once again for this time. Pray this in your son Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's all close with the benediction. Yo air out an eye pull of a lecha vichuneka. You said an eye pull of a lecha vichuneka. Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. B'shem Yeshua Meshichenu. Baruch haba b'shem adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In our Messiah Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.